No, it's almost like the, the Facebook outage the other day where epistemology just crashed because everyone had been had adopted forever this analysis of knowledge and they didn't. I, I wrote a book a few years ago called um, The Miracle Myth, Why Belief in the Resurrection and, and Supernatural is, is Unjustified. That probably made you uh, very <laughs> popular among all your religious relatives. <laughs> fortunately, fortunately I, I have no religious relatives. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm here with Dr. Shapiro, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And Dr. Shapiro, you wrote a book called Why Bad Thinking Happens to Good People, um, which I'm excited to talk to you about. How, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Ami, and, and thanks very much for inviting me onto your, your uh, podcast here. Awesome. Uh, so what's, what's the genesis of this book? It's a very uh, useful title. It gives a good sense of what the book is about, Why Bad Thinking Happens to Good People. What's the, what's the origin story of this book? Uh, so my, my co-author and I spend lots of time uh, running and biking together and, and complaining about the world. And it, it occurred to us on a number of occasions that the sorts of problems we see the world facing are, are in large part due to poor thinking, bad decisions. And uh, Steve, Steve Nadler, my, my co-author, who's a professor of philosophy also at UW-Madison, Steve had the, an idea, he, he sort of pitched this idea for a, a book to me, and uh, Steve would focus on sort of the latter parts of the book in which he's talking, in which we're talking about the examined life and uh, decision-making, and I would, I would focus my attention on the earlier chapters, which were sort of more technical in nature, dealing with issues in epistemology, which is the, the fancy label that philosophers give to theory of knowledge, to a theory about what constitutes a justified belief and how beliefs differ from knowledge. That's great. And, and I think those two uh, sections of the book uh, sort of blended together very seamlessly. And well, that's good. That was, yeah. that took a lot of effort on our parts. And I can uh, imagine we about that. Yeah, I can imagine. And I didn't, I didn't feel like I was listening to two different authors. So that's, that's great. Um, obviously, I mean, we've all been affected by bad thinking. Um, and uh, I think, I think we all have sort of a, a similar similar experiences to what you described of you know uh, worrying about um, worrying about bad thinking. So so I guess uh, what, what's your sort of hope for 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 the book and for the impact that that it can have? Our our hope is that well we have a couple of different hopes. What would be great, but it's kind of an unrealistic hope, is that the audience most in need of this book would read it and learn something from it. Um, I think that's that's not going to happen. That's that's a pipe dream, but that's a hope anyway. Uh, a, a sort of more modest hope would be that uh, people inclined to learn about the way philosophers think about thinking and apply some of our lessons to their own decision making and and, and their own evaluations of of arguments and conclusions would benefit from the book. Uh, and not only would they benefit from the book, but they might have have relatives or friends who are among the sort of target audience here, and, and they could speak more authoritatively about some of these issues. And then a kind of distinct goal is to 
plump for philosophy and expose people to the wisdom that's collected through the millennia of philosophical discussion and and reveal to people that that uh, reasoning is not a kind of subjective matter. You have your views, I have mine. In, in fact, there are hard standards that can be applied to arguments. And uh, just just learning about this, even if you don't master the tools, I think is revelatory in some sort of way. Yeah, and, and I certainly appreciate the project of bringing the, the kind of work that gets done in the academia to a broader audience. I feel like we, we really need more of that just in general. Um, and I feel like that book does that um, successfully for sure. Thank you. Um, so let's let's sort of start where I think the book basically starts uh, with a very basic question. Uh, what is knowledge? No, that's, <laughs> that is a very basic question. And uh, philosophers have been talking about this for a long time. Uh, originally, Plato offered an analysis of knowledge. He said that uh, knowledge was justified true belief. And we, we could look at those pieces in, in turn. Some beliefs are justified and, and some are not, right? So so my belief that it's, it's currently raining in Madison, Wisconsin is justified because I'm looking out my window and I'm seeing the rain. And if someone asked me why I believe it's raining, I'd say, well, it, it looks like it's raining. And that's a pretty good reason, given that my, my eyesight is pretty good. But suppose uh, I also said, and, and I believe that 100 years from now, on this precise day, 100 years from now, it will also be raining. Now, if they asked me what justified that belief, I couldn't really provide any sort of justification other than, well, that's what I think. So that's that's one contrast between a justified and an unjustified belief. The unjustified belief doesn't have reasons or evidence in support. But now let's, let's get to knowledge. Suppose that, um, I believe that 100 years from now it, it will rain. And in fact, 100 years from now it does rain. That means my belief was true. But we don't say that today I knew that it would rain because that true belief wasn't justified. So you can have true beliefs that are justified and true beliefs that are unjustified. And what Plato thought was knowledge is a true belief. You can't know something false. It's a true belief that's justified. So I can know that it's raining right now because my belief is justified and because it really is raining. Now, subsequent to uh, this analysis, which was embraced for a couple thousand years, uh, it was it was rejected. Gettier? Gettier? Um, Gettier. 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 Right. Uh, it, it was rejected. Uh, Bertrand Russell, I think, might have beaten Gettier to the the punch, but but the idea is we could have justified true beliefs that that aren't knowledge and uh, philosophers have been scrambling since this discovery to provide a, a different account of what it means to know something. But uh, for our purposes, typically enough, knowledge does amount to justified true belief. I, I, can we get some Gettier examples? I have I have Gettier examples. Sure. I, well, I'm a computer programmer, so I actually oh. encounter Getty examples every single day of my working life. <laughs> really? Why um, is that? I, I, well, I'm working on a naughty problem and I uh -huh. come up with some theory based on some evidence. And mm. all the time uh, I'll find out that I was right. But my evidence was completely, completely irrelevant. It had absolutely nothing to do with why I was right. Um, mm -hmm. It's just the nature of working in so many uh, 
so many, you know, computer programming problem bugs all the time, you know, uh -huh. trying to solve problems all the time. Yeah. Um, but so, I mean, I'm happy to give you uh, examples, but do you, want, do you want to give an example of a Gettier uh, example? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, well, here, here, here's, here's one that is applicable to me. I mean, uh, we, were, we were chatting just before we started, and I mentioned that uh, I, I've uh, ruptured my Achilles tendon, and so I'm, I'm walking around now on, on crutches some of the time. Now, suppose I walk into a room and I, I see someone holding crutches, and uh, I infer that uh, this person must have injured her leg. Okay, so I, I form a I form a justified belief that someone in this room has injured her her leg. But suppose the person's holding the crutches for someone who I'm not even seeing in the room, who's on the other side of the room talking with a crowd of people, and it's that person who's in fact injured. The person with the crutches I see is just holding these crutches for this other person. So I have a, a justified belief that someone in the room is injured because I see someone with crutches. And I have a true belief that someone is injured in the in the room because there is someone in the room injured. But it seems odd to say that I know that someone in the room is injured, given that I'm not looking at the right person. Or an even simpler case, and this is Bertrand Russell's, is suppose there's a, a clock on the wall. Uh, it used to be clocks had these things called hands that moved around around surface and uh, pointed out different numbers. Now, ordinarily, when a clock says it's 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 twelve fifteen. You can have a justified belief that it is 12:15 because clocks are standardly correct. But maybe this clock had stopped uh, 12 hours ago. No longer works, and it just so happens that it is 12:15. So you have a justified belief that it is, and it really is. But it seems odd to say you can know it's 12:15 given that the clock is broken. Right. So that's great. I love that. And we're. I think at this point we're a little bit outside the scope of the book which you sort of gestured at in the beginning, how for our purposes, justified true belief works. But um, I, I'm okay with with that. Um, and I would love to you know, hear your thoughts, if any, about- Good, I wanna hear one of your Gettier cases. Oh, sure, I, I love Gettier cases. Oh, I mean, I, I wasn't gonna give one from computer programming because that's too technical, but like a, they're like similar to the Bertrand Russell examples. You know, like um, I imagine I, I drive by a house in my car. You know, I think of them all the time. They're fun to think about. Yeah, I drive by a house and I see a cow in the window and I'm like, oh my God, why there's a cow in that person's house. But it turns out that what I actually saw was a pasteboard cutout of a cow. It wasn't actually a cow. It was just like oh. a, a, a fake fa facsimile of a cow. But there was also a cow in the house at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> right. So now, do I have knowledge that there's a cow in the house? I have a justified true belief. It's true there's a cow. I have some justification for it. But there's some disconnect between my justification and the truth of that belief. Right, exactly, right. That's kind of like the crutches case I was mentioning. Exactly, exactly. And, and like I said, they're just fun to think about um, all the different, you know. Right, and, 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 and once you're introduced to them, they come up all, the, all over the place. And it's, you know, it's amazing that it took a couple thousand years for someone to, to realize this. Yeah, can, can you speak to the fallout of that realization? I mean, it seems like- Oh, I mean, it was cataclysmic. Right, what is, what is, it, what is it like to be a part of that, that world when, when this happens? Um, well, th th this happened before I was part of that world, but. But Gettier was, a, uh, I believe, an assistant professor at, at Wayne State University in, in Detroit, I guess. And he published this paper. It was barely three pages long. And it, it would almost, you know, it was almost like the, the Facebook outage the other day, where epistemology just crashed. 
because everyone had been had adopted forever this analysis of knowledge and they didn't they didn't really they thought you know if if philosophers can be certain of anything it could be of this analysis of knowledge and and here was this this young unknown person uh publishing a very brief article that uh completely turned on its head uh, this this view of knowledge. Now that's kind of an exaggeration because, I, as I mentioned, Russell had mentioned this, this clock example earlier, but but it, it didn't seem to get the sort of traction that that Gettier's uh, paper did. So where again, we're outside the scope of the book, but I'm okay with that. Where, where does the philosophy of knowledge go from here? How, how have they been picking up the pieces after uh, Gettier? How is how is our thing about knowledge changed going forward? Um. Well, a, a lot of epistemology then then w went looking for that third condition. Okay, so so we had two conditions for knowledge, each of which was necessary, and together they were sufficient. So knowledge must involve a true belief, and it must involve a justified belief. So those are the, the two necessary conditions. You can know something only if it's justified, only if it's true. Uh, and then together, it was thought those that those were sufficient. Uh, if you met those conditions, you'd know something. So some epistemologists went looking for a third condition. So it's not true that knowledge is just justified true belief, it's justified true belief plus something else. And it was that plus something else that a lot of uh, epistemologists went hunting for. Others started to look for other ways to conceptualize knowledge. Um, so, so reliableists, um, reliableists were people that, that thought you, you, could, you could know something if you learned of it on the basis of some apparatus like a sensory system that was reliable. And you could know things on this account, even if you didn't know you knew them, because so long as this information was coming to you through this reliable channel, it would count as knowledge, even if you were unaware of the justification that existed for it. So there, there, Lots of, di lots of different research projects were, were, were birthed by uh, Gettier's paper. Is it possible to know anything with absolute certainty? Um, I, perhaps, um, so you might think that you can know certain so-called analytic truths, truths like uh, a triangle uh, or the, the the, the, the sum of the angles of a triangle is 180 degrees. That seems to be something that we can know with absolute certainty. Uh, but those, those are, are claims about concepts, our concept of a triangle. Right. I don't so think it's tautological. Can... Yeah, they're, we they're define a triangle. We define a triangle as having 180 degrees. Right. Right. Where you might say, I can know that a bachelor is an unmarried man because that's, that's just how I'm defining the concept. But uh, but knowledge of the of the world, knowledge that we acquire through empirical means, through experimentation, through observation, I don't think we can know anything with absolute certainty. But I think absolute certainty is isn't the right standard. Uh, so Descartes famously thought that to know something required absolute certainty, and uh, this is why uh, when you, when you read Descartes, he he first sort of sounds like a, a skeptic because in his famous meditations, what Descartes does is he imagines a situation very much like what you might find in the matrix, where imagine that you're living in this kind of virtual world and, and 
in his day, he didn't know about virtual worlds, of course. So he said, imagine that there's a uh, evil demon with the powers of a god deceiving you, making you think that two plus two equals four, when in fact it doesn't really. And so what Descartes was challenging us to think about was a situation in which we can't be absolutely certain of anything because of the possibility of this evil genius deceiving us. And then Descartes thought, though, that there was one thing he could know. And um, the argument went something like this. Uh, if he's doubting everything, because he's entertaining the possibility of this evil genius, if he's doubting everything, then he's doubting. But you can't doubt without thinking. Um, that's what it is to doubt is a, a mode of thinking. And so Descartes could be certain that he was thinking. Now, if someone said, are you sure you think, are you sure you're thinking? How can he answer that without thinking? So this is what led Descartes to the, uh, I, I think, therefore I am sort of argument. And so Descartes thought you could know with absolute certainty of your own existence and your own capacity to think. Now, most philosophers have, have abandoned the kind of epistemology that, that Descartes was developing. Uh, well, not most, but a, a good number of them. And I think many philosophers now would say knowledge is possible even without absolute certainty. So I think I'm correct when I say I know it's raining outside, even though someone might have set up an elaborate hologram outside my window and, in fact, it's sunny outside. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I guess. When I think about these problems, when I think about this this sort of assumption that you can't really have absolute knowledge, uh, or perfect knowledge, let's say, or mm -hmm. you, you can't know anything with absolute certainty outside of maybe maybe Descartes' uh, example. Um, of course, he extrapolated beyond. He he also believed with absolute certainty that God exists and all these things. But if mm -hmm. we uh, in, in the general case, uh, we we can't have absolute certainty. And also, with the with the Gettier examples, make me wonder is 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 epistemology or not epistemology, let's say, but these these questions of um, of knowledge. You know, when we think about knowledge, are we are we touching on metaphysics? That that's what I wonder. Are we touching on because again, the Gettier example says that there's a breakdown between the evidence and the reality. Is it is there? Are we appealing to some sort of metaphysical connection um, between things? I, I I guess I guess metaphysics enters the picture if you wonder what it means to say that a belief is true. So, so if we think of knowledge as uh, justified true belief, we have some understanding of what justification is. Justification involves the um, accumulation of evidence or reason in support of a belief. And then the question is, what does it mean to say that a, a belief is true? And, and here we might get into metaphysics because someone might say a belief is true if it describes the world accurately. Uh, and that assumes that it is possible to describe the world accurately. And it, it seems to assume that there's some world independent from us to be described. And that's a metaphysical claim that there's, there's a world independent of us. So, so you're right that, that some of these questions unavoidably turn to metaphysics. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, great. I mean, um, this, is, this is awesome. I, my, next, my next batch of questions were going to be about evidence. Um, but I feel like we're running behind schedule, so I'm just gonna skip those. <laughs> we have also the, the book. <laughs> That's too bad. I love talking about evidence. I know the book goes into depth detail about what what evidence is and and how how evidence works. Um, 
and and uh, there's there's a lot to discuss there. But um, maybe maybe that'll be for next time. Um, you talk a lot about symbolic logic in the book, um, propositional logic, um, modus ponens. Is that right? Modus ponens is a rule of inference. Yeah. What, what, how does modus ponens work? People should know what modus ponens is. Uh, okay, so a rule of inference is a rule that, um, well, as a as a computer program, you, you'd appreciate this. A rule of inference is is a rule such that if you if you plug into one end uh, something that's true, it's going to spit out from the other end another true sentence. So modus and an inference rule is just just that. It's it's a rule that takes you from one truth to another truth. So uh here here's here's a, a sentence it's a conditional sentence that is it's a sentence that has the form of if and then where the the part following the if is the antecedent of the sentence and the part following the then is the consequent of the sentence so the sentence is something like uh if it's raining today then i will not go to the picnic okay now it is raining today and so the conclusion is that I should draw, I will not go to the, the picnic. So more generally, anything with a form, if P then Q, if it's raining, then I won't go to the picnic. P, it's raining, therefore Q. So modus ponens is just a rule that says whenever you have a conditional statement, if P then Q, if the antecedent of that statement is true, then the consequent of that statement must also be true. That's, that's the rule called right. modus Opponents. And then logicians, uh, starting with Aristotle, had names for these rules, although these weren't Aristotle's names. So modus tollens is another rule of inference. It says, if P, then Q, not Q, therefore not P. So we now know, given that this is a rule of inference, a rule for reasoning or thinking, that anytime you come across a conditional statement and another statement denying the consequent of that conditional, the antecedent of that conditional must also be false. If it's raining, then I will not go to the picnic. I will go to the picnic. That's the negation of I will not go to the picnic. Therefore, it's not raining. Mm -hmm. Another mm -hmm. valid inference. Yeah. Um, okay. It's very exciting to the reader to read about this world of philosophy that deals with formal symbolic logic. And of course, there's a whole world of academic research and, and you know, it seems to border almost on the mathematical research of developing these, these rules. And some of them are named and you can, you know, uh, you can come up with really complex uh, proofs about what is true, what's valid, what's not, or what is true, what's not true. Right. But it seems to me as an outsider that there's like a gulf, there's like a gap between the promise of symbolic logic, this world of like formal proofs of rationality and the real world applicability, like the real world utility of this uh, infrastructure. Um, am I correct in, in seeming like there's, there's a surprising lack of, of actual utility that we're deriving in a, that our day-to-day -day lives from this? Most of the reasoning that will be viable in our lives is probably not deductive reasoning. It's probably not the kind of proofs and rules of inferences that, that we've been talking about. It's still worth knowing this stuff because you do hear all the time people making arguments that violate, they, they're intending to make a deductive argument and then they end up violating some rule of inference. So a very 
common sort of fallacy is has this form. Someone says if P then Q, where P and Q are filled in with whatever this person is interested in, uh, Q therefore P. So, so I might say, you know, if if it if it's uh, raining, I'm I'm not going to go to the picnic, and then I'll say, um, I'm not going to go to the picnic, and someone might say, well, it, it must be raining, but that's that that's a fallacy that's the fallacy of affirming the consequence so it or uh there's another common fallacy known as begging the question which is in a sense a violation of of um of deductive logic but but you are you are right Ami, that um for the most part ruling learning the the rules of deductive logic are not going to get you too far in in life because most of our decisions in life are are based on uh, evidence, and when you talk about evidence as supporting your decisions, you're no longer talking about deductive reasoning, but inductive reasoning. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that deductive reasoning gave us Gödel's incompleteness theorem. Is that is that correct? Uh, well, Gödel's incompleteness theorem is a theorem about uh, a consequence of uh, deductive logic and involves the consequence of deductive logic. So, so Gödel proves some things about the the limitations of of logic and arithmetic. Right. Uh, that was that was another bombshell. Right. <laughs> so yeah. <clears throat> um, but also not so practical, I think, in day to day, like questions of politics or you know, uh, is it raining outside? Um, another question that that. Uh, I have for you is, is, can you speak a little bit again, this is, we're outside the scope of the book. I hope, I hope that's okay. You could tell me if, uh, that's, that's fine. You know, too far. um, kind of fun to talk about something else. <laughs> Whitehead and Russell's Principia Mathematica. Uh, I can't tell you a lot about that. So, so the project that, 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 um, that Russell and, and Whitehead had was to show how mathematics could follow from logic. Uh, I might be getting these details wrong. It's been since grad school since I learned about this stuff, and that was a million years ago. But uh, so the idea was to to try to show how you can you can develop mathematics from logic, and uh, and then this is uh, the point where where Gödel enters the story because he he figured out that um, in fact there'd be uh, true expressions that uh, you couldn't prove. Uh, uh, true mathematical expressions that couldn't be proved. Um, and so this put an end to the Russell Whitehead project of showing how uh, from logic you could, you could derive mathematical truths. But what, what happened in this, in this drama is like so wild. Like these two, these two philosophers, they, they like took the tools, it seems to me, again, as an outsider who doesn't understand any of this stuff, they took mm -hmm. the tools of, of symbolic logic and they said, we're going to build up everything from symbolic logic. And they wrote, Wikipedia has a, an article about this, where I think like a hundred or so pages of, of the densest logical proofs. Yes. And eventually they prove one plus one equals two, you know, <laughs> and, and from their perspective, they, they probably saw this as like the ultimate triumph of philosophy yeah. as the foundation of the world. And I think we probably now live in a world where no one even knows what they're talking about. Like no one's ever read it. No one thinks that what they did was like useful at all. Um, yeah. It was like a fool's errand. Well, how many people have read Newton's Principia? 
That's fair. Uh, <laughs> and yet uh, that had a tremendous impact on the world. But right, I mean, most, well, one difference is, uh, you know, you, you could, you, if you're gonna build an airplane, you need to know some physics. Um, it's hard to know what application uh, a, a proof that mathematics could be derived from logic could have a sort of practical application. Uh, so I, I guess that's why it's, it's, it's development and, and failure is hardly a blip on the radar screen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, moving on. So a, a big part of this, this book, of course, based on the title is, um, you know, how do we, how do we have good beliefs? How do we have good thinking? Right. We want, we all, we all want to have good thinking. So, you know, we all believe certain things. I certainly have, uh, many strong opinions. Um, some of my strong opinions might be controversial. Um, how do I know that I'm on solid epistemological ground? How does a person know that their beliefs are, are good thinking as opposed to bad thinking? Uh, a couple things you can do. One is you could ask what your reasons are. I, th I, th I think this is always an important first step. Uh, and not only have, do you have to ask what reasons you have for believing something, you have to ask where those reasons are, are coming from, uh, the source of those reasons. I, I, I mention this because I have a, a sister-in-law who's a conspiracy theorist and uh, as, as much as I try to resist getting into arguments with her, it, it seems impossible to avoid at some point. Uh, and she'll send me um, she'll send me articles to defend her conclusions. The articles constitute reasons, but but when you actually read these articles, you find out that um, they're not from authorities. They're from questionable sources. They they cite statistics that others have demonstrated to be false. So it's very important that you have reasons and that you can verify the, uh, the, um, the, the accuracy of the uh, reports that are giving you these, these, these reasons. That's a good place to start. You also need, I think it's important to, re to think about whether your, con your conclusions are based on deductive style reasoning of the sort we were talking about a few minutes ago or inductive style reasoning and, and you need to do this because the standards by which you evaluate a conclusion based on deductive arguments are very different from the standards you'd use to evaluate a conclusion based on inductive reasoning. Chances are, if it's an argument about whether vaccines are safe, whether climate is changing, whether the uh, election was stolen, these will be inductive arguments that you're relying on to make your case. And so, here we have to think about various traps to avoid an inductive reasoning. And I, I talk about some of these. I talk about things like confirmation bias and, and base rate fallacy. Uh, uh, and when you sort of gather all these different aspects to thinking together, the hope is that you're in a situation to be self-reflective enough to give some sort of solid assessment of what it is you've concluded. Mm -hmm. So I, I think, um, you know, I certainly have conspiracy theorists in my family and um, uh, a circle of, you know, I've, online I've engaged with, you know, so many, and I, I'm sure everyone watching 
I, like we said in the outset, I think everyone is touched by what they perceive as bad thinking. Um, so that, that's a pretty universal kind of experience um, in the modern world, for sure. Let's see. Let's, let's, say, let's say I believe um, that the earth is flat. Mm -hmm. Now, from my perspective, I have, I have all sorts of strong evidence in favor of my belief. And that, that evidence comes from people that I perceive as experts. And from my perspective, uh, the people who believe the earth is round are complacency theorists who are so stuck in their own confirmation bias that mm -hmm. they're ignoring the testimony of you know, real people who have done real experiments and have confirmed that the earth is flat. And um, what, what do you say to someone like that who says that our, our situation is symmetrical? You know, whatever, whatever flaws in my thinking you identify, I identify them in your thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Here's, um, here's the, the, the kind of question you, you should ask. Before, before I get to that case, let me talk a minute about a kind of an analogous case, uh, what, what I think to be an analysis, analogous case. I, I wrote a book a few years ago called um, The Miracle Myth, Why Belief in the Resurrection and, and Supernatural is, is Unjustified. That probably made you uh, very <laughs> popular among all your religious relatives. Uh, fortunately, fortunately I, I have no religious relatives. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, but um, interestingly, it, it it gave me an opportunity to engage in some debates with some evangelical uh, pastors, and we've become friends, uh, oddly enough. And you know, we can argue about whether God exists. Uh, we could argue about whether the resurrection ac actually occurred. And when arguing about whether God exists, I think the thing to do is. Uh, you each say, okay, what's the one piece of evidence that would convince you that you're wrong? And if there is no piece of evidence that would convince someone that they're wrong, then, well, first of all, there's no point in arguing with them. And, and, and second of all, they, they have a kind of bad theory. It's an, it's an ad hoc theory in the sense that no matter what you say, they can adjust their theory to accommodate this piece of, of negative evidence. You see this all the time also with creationists, people who believe that the earth was created a few thousand years ago and that um, that God created each individual species separately. And you say, well, what evidence would convince you that you're wrong and in fact, organisms evolved? And if they don't have an answer to that, you can point out to them the problems associated with not being able to, uh, to uh, test a theory what we're asking for is some way to test whether someone is right. In order to do that, you have to figure out what would show them to be wrong. So the, the question to ask these flat earthers is, what's the observation that would convince you that the earth is spherical? And then I'll tell you what observation would convince me that the earth is, is flat. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems to me, once you've, once you've laid out those cards, you can make some progress. So I, I totally agree. And I don't disagree again. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that makes a lot of sense, but just also agreeing, but also maybe trying to problematize a little bit. Uh -huh. um, when we get to topics like quantum mechanics, you know, I believe quantum mechanics is real mm -hmm. or general relativity. Let's say someone said to me, 
what would you have what evidence would you have to see to reject your belief in quantum mechanics what what's my answer to that um well i i I don't know enough about quantum mechanics to tell you that but let's talk about general theory general okay so quantum fortunately people who who work in quantum mechanics can talk about the kinds of experiments that uh, are vital to confirming their theory. So this is this is what happened with Einstein, right? So you have uh, the the precession in the in the orbit of uh, of, of Mercury. Mercury. Yeah. Um, so here are these crucial observations: people like Eddington finding how 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 starlight bends around massive bodies and, and things like that. And if these observations turned out to be false, then you have a choice. You either say Einstein was wrong, his theory is false, or you say that there are some assumptions being made that that were in error. Um, those are your two choices. Either the theory is false or some assumptions associated with the theory are false. Uh, but it's a way to test. Now, if a flat earther said, said to me, what would convince you that you're wrong? I'd say, well, Here's what would convince me. If I were to set forth on a straight path from where I am and came to the edge of the world, I would be convinced that I was wrong. Now, what would convince you that you're wrong? Okay, so let's go back to the uh, relativity for a second. Am uh-huh. I, but wouldn't that be making an appeal to an authority? So in this hypothetical, we're constructing hypothetical. Yeah. I have a friend. My friend does not believe in general relativity. Mm-hmm. And I say, but I, I believe in it. He says, what would you, what would, what would uh, you know, what would disprove you? So I'm, I'm saying if, if scientists, I'm saying if people, not myself, ran experiments um, that disproved relativity, you know, that would disprove it. So I, I feel like I'm making an appeal to authority there. And the yeah. problem is he has his own authorities. My friend, he has his anti-relativist uh, relativity professors, you know, professors um, yeah. with their degrees, you know, who, who come to different conclusions. And he's going to make also an appeal to authority. So I feel like at that point, we're at a real impasse. Yeah. Uh, okay. So then, that's a question about who 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 gets to say what an authority is, I guess. But uh, now, sometimes it's it's not hard to um, show that a so-called authority is, in fact, not deserving of, of, of the title. So you know, we see this with so-called authorities saying you need to take a horse dewormer to to treat COVID. Now the some people might regard them as authorities, but then what happens is people start following this advice, and it turns out that uh, people taking doses of, of horse dewormer end up sick, and it doesn't prevent COVID. So uh, while, it's, while it's true that there can be competing authorities, if one of these parties is not genuinely authority, an authority, then what they're saying, what they're saying will, be, will be wrong, and, and we'll see the consequences of that eventually. I hope you're right. I feel like one of the lessons I've been learning from the COVID crisis is that human beings are surprisingly uh, impervious to, uh, you know, the consequences of their beliefs, you know? Yeah. Um, but let, let's talk about the prudentialism uh, cutout. Okay. Uh, what is what is prudentialism and, and how does that offer an alternative to evidentialism when it comes to epistemology? Okay. So an, an evidentialist is someone who believes that you should never believe anything unless you have enough evidence. Um, so believing on insufficient evidence is a kind of 
failing. In fact, the some some evidentialists even take it to be a moral failing, but we don't have to, to go there. It's a it's a failure if you believe something like it's raining or that um, um, you know the Packers will win the Super Bowl or or uh, that uh, September 21st is the first day of fall. If you believe something without adequate sufficient evidence, you've done something wrong and so you shouldn't. And the prudentialist says there are many cases in which it's okay to believe something even if you don't have enough evidence. And that's because holding such a belief, a belief that that is admittedly un, unjustified, but holding such a belief could be good for you. So it would be prudent to hold that belief. So for instance, um, a, a cancer patient might uh, learn that their prospects are very poor. The doctors give this person six months to live and uh, all the evidence she has at her disposal justifies the belief that she's dying of cancer. But it might be good for her to believe that in fact, she's going to survive this. And it'd be good for her because it would make the remaining part of her life livable. And in fact, it might even improve her chances to survive if she has this kind of optimistic attitude. Uh, for many people, belief in God is a prudential sort of belief. They recognize that they don't have evidence supporting a rational belief in God, but belief in God is so important to them, it makes their life so meaningful. It uh, enriches their relationships. It does all sorts of good things for them that it would be silly for them not to believe in God, given the, the benefits such a belief has for them. So that would be a, a prudential, a prudentially justified, in some sense of justified belief, rather than a epistemically, rationally, evidence-based justification. Yeah. One of my favorite authors is uh, Samuel Beckett. And one of my favorite books by Samuel Beckett is a book called Malloy. And uh, in this, in this uh, story, there's a, a secret agent and he gets a messenger and he's talking about his relationship uh, with, him, with himself, the secret agent, this messenger who sends him these messages. And uh, he's getting messages. Uh, um, the, the guy's messenger's name is Gaber. And he's talking, if I'll read a, a few sentences, two sentences here, three sentences from the book. He says uh, he's wondering if, there, if he's the only secret agent or if there are others, if, there's, he's the, if this is the only messenger, if there are others, because he doesn't know. He just only has contact with this one messenger. So he says, I had never seen any other messenger than Gaber, nor any other agent than myself, but I supposed we were not the only ones, and, Gabe, and Gaber must have supposed the same, for the feeling that we were the only ones of our kind, I believe, would have been more than we could have borne. Yeah. And so it's this example <laughs> of, of prudentialism where you, can, you can't bear the thought <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so you believe, you know, right. um, I wonder, I wonder if a lot of things in the world can be ascribed to prudentialism, prudentialism. So uh, a, a current political issue, uh, which is, you know, very uh, incendiary these days, is uh, Trump supporters saying that Trump actually won the election, that yep. the you know, election was a was a scam or whatever. So if, if I'm a Trump supporter who doesn't want a Biden presidency, it's, it's quite a prudential belief. It's quite a convenient belief to believe that the election was a, was a fraud of some sort. That's right. Uh, the, the danger comes when people confuse their prudential reasons for believing something with 
with evidential reasons for believing something. So, so the Trump supporter might say, I can't get up in the morning thinking that Biden actually won the race. It's just too heartbreaking for me. So I'm going to continue to believe that, that Trump won. That's okay. But then they go on to say, not only is this something that I find comfort in believing, but in fact, all the evidence suggests that uh, Biden lost the race. And that, that's, that's the error when you, when you shift from recognizing a prudential reason for believing something to thinking that it's in fact evidence-based. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, when I think of these questions of evidence and the psychology around evidence, um, I'm reminded of an experiment. Uh, this is a classic experiment that I've read about in different books. Um, and I'm probably going to get the details sort of incorrect. And, and it's possible that, you know, with the replication crisis, you know, other experiments have sort of superseded this as being more correct or whatever. But it's like mm-hmm. a classic. It's written up everywhere. You sever the corpus callosum and you give information to one half of the brain as opposed mm-hmm. to the other. So you can get this scenario where, where a person reads to pick up an item, but the verbal part of the brain doesn't know why they're picking it up. So then you ask the verbal part of it, why did you pick up this item? And they give you some, some story that they just made up you know, right. to explain why they're picking up. Um, the item and this idea that once once you have prudential, you know, uh, w- once you have a reason to believe, you'll find once you have some emotional reason to believe, you'll find evidential reasons to believe as well. Yeah, that's an example of sort of a, a confabulation. Uh, there's there's nothing wrong with those experiments, by the way. This mm-hmm. is early work by a neuroscientist named Michael Gazaniga, and uh, yeah, he worked with these split brain patients, and philosophers have. I really combed through this research because it raises so many interesting questions about who's in that that head after all. Uh, is there one individual or two individuals or or no individuals? But the, the those holdings find up. But that's an example of sort of confabulation. And every once in a while, I'll watch uh, um, the monologue to the Jimmy Kimmel show or something like that, and and he has people interviewing someone on the street. And the last one that I that caught my attention. People were interviewing, they had made up some story about uh, some movie star who had done some terrible thing, or they didn't even make it up. They just said, did you hear about the terrible thing so-and-so did? And every one of these people says, oh yeah, that was really terrible. And then, and then the interviewer say, well, what do you think the person should do to apologize? And, and they've, all, they've all sort of just naturally assumed that they knew something about this fictitious event that they hadn't heard about two seconds before. And it's just, it's just eye-opening uh, how people will conform their beliefs to their desires rather than the other way around. Right. So I guess, I guess I'll just say that the alternative approach to changing, to trying to change, I mean, look, Lord knows, I mean, how many people can raise their hand and say, I've changed someone's mind on something. I mean, this is sort of a, a tough, a tough, tall ask, a tough lift. Yeah, anyone. Uh-huh. But but the alternative approach, I think, is to work in the realm of emotion and, and yeah. to work in the realm of, you know, w- why is it that this is a comforting truth for you, you know, and allowing that conversation to to sort of dr- take its course and see where that goes, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting work psychologists are doing on how um, emotions seem to be the a, a principal guiding force in in our decisions despite the fact that we think we we have reasons to offer uh there's a psychologist named jonathan height who's done a lot of cool experiments on this sort of stuff sure sure i've read some of his uh work on this so yeah okay we're almost out of time um but i have a lot of things i want to ask you so we'll maybe try to go fast here um 
is, is science true? So is general relativity true? Is quantum mechanics true? Uh, so these are questions that, that uh, philosophers of science think about, and there are different ways to understand what a theory is supposed to be doing. Some people think theories are supposed to be getting at the truth, that there's this, this world out there and, the, and the, the good scientific theory is the scientific theory that tells us accurately how that world is. So it's a true theory. There are other philosophers of science who think that it's the job of a theory simply to be predictably adequate. Uh, so a theory that can tell you what will happen given certain conditions without taking a stand on whether this theory is true uh, is the way we should think about these theories. So there are people who say that we shouldn't ask whether there really are electrons. It's enough that by positing the existence of electrons, we can build all sorts of technologies and make all sorts of predictions without worrying about whether it's true that there are electrons. So your, your question, is science true? Are scientific theories, should they be evaluated on their truth, is, is a controversial one. Mm -hmm. And uh, some philosophers think so and others don't. And I wonder if that can serve as a template for the way different people think about truth, where as a philosopher, you are, are interested in day-to-day -day truth as being actually true, whereas, whereas other people might see truth as, uh, as, as beliefs, as, as tools, you know, mm -hmm. a Trump supporter who, who is going to, you know, hold strong beliefs about uh, the result of an election is less concerned about truth, maybe more concerned about, you know, politics or things like that. And so we have, you know, or, or functionality. Um, and that's an extreme example, but maybe, you know, there's, there's just, just like there's multiple templates in the world of science, there might be multiple templates the way other people relate to questions of, of truth um, in their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah, that could be. I, one expression I hate is, uh, you know, that's my truth. Um, I, that doesn't make any sense. There's 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 truth and there's not truth, and the two of us can't disagree about whether a proposition is true and both be correct. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. So the, the 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 debate in philosophy of science is a debate over what the aims of a scientific theory are. Is it to deliver truths or is it to provide us with some sort of predictive adequacy? Yeah, and that's different from what you're suggesting. The the Trumper who who says, you know, I don't care whether this is true. I'm going to continue to, to believe it for my own, often nefarious purposes. That's fair. That's fair. Um, okay. We've got rapid fire here. Are we going to solve the hard problem of consciousness? <laughs> I think uh, the way to, the, the, the hard problem of consciousness is the problem of how it is brain a brain this physical organ in our head that weighs a few pounds is capable of producing things like that tart taste you have when you bite into a lemon or that uh, smell of coffee where do these experiences the, the feeling of um, the, the sensation you get biting into a lemon where does this come from how does the brain make that uh, that's that's the, the hard problem and in, in one iteration of the hard problem and i think we will solve it. Uh, we'll solve it by reconceptualizing what conscious experience is, I think. I think the way we've 
thought about brains and we, the way we thought about consciousness has run into this problem. But look, we know there has to be a solution because there are conscious experiences and there are brains and they're somehow related. Uh, so I, I think we need to rethink some basic terms in this debate. How would you know if an AI is conscious? Uh, I, I think we'd have to rely on behavioral measures. We would, we would have to find it indistinguishable from other sorts of things that we believe to be conscious. Like, how do I know you're conscious? Uh, I'm, I'm judging on our conversation. And if I could have a, a conversation with an AI, like this conversation, I would say that thing is conscious. That might be true, but that's not a very satisfactory kind of answer because it's, uh, it's an appeal to a very human-centric kind of intuition. Uh, ah. As a programmer, well, I want to know. A necessary condition, not a sufficient condition. Right. I mean, as a programmer who might be you know, working on the system, I want to know uh, what's, what's the module, what's the line of code I could toggle on and off. Uh -huh. Can I, as a programmer, can I create something that passes the Turing test, uh, let's say, but is not conscious? Yeah, that I, I think if you program something to pass the Turing test, uh, it, it would be conscious. I think once you think about what's actually involved in having the kind of conversation that the two of us have just had for the, the last hour or so, uh, I think that suffice to show that you're conscious. It, it, it wouldn't be necessary, though. Um, you know, the, the hard question, it seems to me, is a question like, are birds conscious or are toads conscious? I think we're really close to creating a machine that passes the Turing test at the level of like a child. You know, if you look at like GPT-3, you know, someone without a good memory, without like, he's not going to remember what you were talking about, you know. 10 minutes ago in the conversation, but can like draw from the almost infinite, I shouldn't say infinite, but the unbelievably large corpus of, of conversational data on the internet and fake it. I feel like we're really close to that. And you said fake it. That's why, of course I said fake it because it seems <laughs> to me that you can, you can pass it without actually, but that's my intuition and your intuition maybe, I mean, these are certainly complicated. Maybe we need another hour to go into the details of this but um yeah i, I yeah i wonder i i, I think I, it feels to me like we're close to faking it but you're, uh, you don't think so you think if, if we fake it we did it <laughs> that's that's uh kind of a loaded way of putting it but <laughs> i i think uh there, there's a nice paper that daniel dennett wrote about this and the idea he's he he suggests is you know so uh, imagine you're, you're trying to attract someone to a, a city uh, or a town, and you know that this person is cultured. And so you say to the, and so what you do is you, you, you hire a symphony, you hire a professional baseball team, you, 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 you hire theater, theater uh, you construct theaters and hire actors, and, and you bring the person and you say, look, look at all we have to offer here. In a way, they're faking it, right? Um, but typically, when all those things are together, your inference that that's a nice cultured city is a good one. Mm -hmm. uh, because those are pieces of evidence, all of which are associated with the property of being a very cosmopolitan city. So you could fake it, but most of the time, uh, when those sorts of things are collected together, you're, you've got a city uh, 
you're talking about. And likewise, most of the time when we get something that can have a conversation like the two of us, it's because uh, we're both conscious. Yeah. Do psychedelics have a role in the questions of uh, philosophy of mind and uh, the nature of reality? Uh, I don't think so. I think there, there could be questions that arise from thinking about psychedelic uh, experiences. So there are questions about what, what constitutes a hallucination. How does a hallucination differ from an illusion? Are, are hallucinations, do they involve beliefs? And if so, what sorts of beliefs? So there, there are questions that philosophers can ask about this, but uh, I don't think taking uh, psychedelics provide you with any uh, special insights about the nature of reality might provide you with insights about the nature of yourself, but not about reality. People who've taken psychedelics, I haven't, so not myself, but other people might disagree. Yeah, they, yeah, they might. <laughs> Last question. Uh, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, why, why does the world exist? <laughs> uh, by world, I take it you mean the entire universe and not... Yes, everything. Yeah. I, I don't have an answer to that question. Look, uh, uh, we're we're here. If we weren't, we wouldn't be able to. We wouldn't. We wouldn't be able to ask the question. Why doesn't the universe <laughs> exist? Um, so there, there's a. a uh, we 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 may not have an answer to that question. Is I it a question worth working on, or is it an invalid question? I don't think it's a question worth working on. I think. I think the answer would be such that. Uh, uh, something like it just happened. Brute fact. Brute fact. Didn't right. have to happen, but it did happen. Dr. Shapiro, this has been wonderful. I had um, a great time. I had a great time. I learned a lot. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Ami.